Welcome to the Tribal Podcast. We believe that true deep learning happens when you understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. This podcast covers the first part, understand. So together, let's get the key takeaways from this book, Understood. Dale Carnegie recognized that convincing people of your argument, it's an essential skill to have in business, and he developed 12 hacks for winning an argument. So most of the time, arguments only serve to make people sure that they're right and you're wrong. And that's why Carnegie, in the book, he kind of makes this point that it's better to prevent an argument or disagreement uh, from becoming an argument, no matter how much you feel like you're right and they're wrong. And Carnegie learned this lesson, this really valuable lesson, really, early on when he started an argument with a speaker over which book a quotation the speaker had used had come from. And Dale Carnegie claimed that it came from the Bible. The speaker claimed it came from Hamlet. So Carnegie finally asked uh, his friend, who was an expert in Shakespeare, to intervene. The friend agreed with the speaker, and Carnegie protested even more, but received a quick, swift kick from underneath the table. So on the way home, Carnegie asked his friend why he lied, and his friend instead questioned why Carnegie would want to prove the man wrong. Would it make him like Carnegie? Instead, why not just let him save face? The speaker didn't ask for Carnegie's opinion, so why argue with him? There was nothing to gain by being right. So the next time you feel you're on the the verge of an argument, uh, follow Carnegie's tips. First thing to do is to welcome the disagreement. It could be an opportunity to learn, and you might be wrong. Secondly, control your temper, because anger clouds your ability to reason. And then listen to the other person fully. Hear them out and don't interrupt. Emphasize the things that you do agree on first, and be honest. If you've made a mistake, own up to it. I don't think there's any worse point in a disagreement or an argument as the point when you realize that you're wrong. Has that ever happened to you? Uh, <laughs> arguing with them, um, you know, husband, wife, or boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, and in the middle of the argument, you're like, oh no, I'm wrong. <laughs> but uh, you have to, that, that's the worst point in, of the disagreement and the argument. Uh, but you have to, according to Carnegie here, you have to own up when you make a mistake. And then take the time to really think over what they've said thank them for their point of view the reason for for thanking them is to is to is to make out like they're trying to help you rather than hinder you so and you kind of welcome the the disagreement which can sound a bit contrived sometimes or a bit disingenuous but if you if you approach it in a genuine way you um it should come across as, as genuine hopefully so then postpone any any action that you might want to take until both sides have had the opportunity to reflect away from the heat of the moment. And that's a key thing as well. It's kind of everybody, just cooler jets, just kick back for a few minutes. Let's regroup in 10 minutes. Let's all just go for coffee, whatever, and um, kind of have a think, process the conversation, and then come back to the table. That kind of thing is, is, is always useful. So if you've ever been in a position where you've been told uh, you're wrong before you've even got the chance to talk, it really gets your back up, right? So even if you feel like you might be wrong, it's hard to come back from that feeling and you can feel very defensive. You can kind of just dig your heels in then. This is why Carnegie's golden rule is to never tell someone they're wrong, no matter how positive you are. All you're going to do is hurt the person's intelligence, their pride and their emotions. There's no way you can change their opinion under those kind of circumstances. A student of Carnegie's was a car salesman and he was finding it difficult to deal with uh, customer complaints. He'd lose his temper quickly and the customer's... Uh, would kind of you know disappear um, as well and he tried Carnegie's approach and instead of jumping in and telling the customers they were wrong he instead would say uh, he wanted to hear more about the customer's issue 
the respect and the courtesy then that he showed the customer paid off and some even recommended uh, the company to their friends. So you need to be diplomatic when dealing with a disgruntled customer. One of the best things you can do, I think, when you're, if you've got a really irate customer, there's no point telling somebody to calm down or to relax. It's to acknowledge their anger, acknowledge their frustration. A lot of the time, all, not a lot of the time, but the first part, I suppose, of, of anyone who is like that irate or, or very angry about something is they want to feel acknowledged. They want to feel like someone has actually listened to me and understands my frustration. And then you can get into what the possible solutions might be. But if you if you just stonewall somebody or get angry back or find yourself in a screaming match with somebody, it's it's never a good thing. So what Carnegie suggests is that you, you do some of the following. You might say something like, I thought otherwise, but I might be wrong. I often, I often am. If I am wrong, I want to put it right. So let's have a look. Tell me more about it. I think that's a great line when somebody is is um, angry or irate. Tell me more about that. And let them get it all off their chest. And then you can start to understand them what might have happened from, from their point of view or from like the from the company's um, back end, if you like. And it could be a customer. It could be um, a work colleague. It could be a direct report. It could be anyone, right? It's just tell me more about that. And just actively listen to what they're saying so when you admit that you're wrong it can disarm the customer as well and shows that you want to work with them rather than work against them to solve the problem um, which is a big thing as well next thing then is to admit when you're wrong um, if you're wrong don't be afraid to admit it so we might be afraid that it'll make us look bad but in fact it makes us look far better than trying to argue something that we know especially when we know we're wrong and um, if we're just trying to save face it's it's um it's very frustrating when if you're arguing with somebody and you know that you're right and you know that they know you're right, but they keep digging their heels in, I think it's if that like you feel like it's going around in circles. So if the other person could admit they're wrong or if, if the roles are reversed and you can admit you're wrong, it goes a long way to, to get into a solution, really. Um, so he tells a story about a commercial artist who used this technique when he had done a rushed drawing for a particularly awkward art ed, art editor. Uh, who took real pleasure in finding fault anyway. And the artist was told to go to the editor's office and found that the editor was already locked and loaded, uh, ready to criticise the artist's rushed work. So before the editor had the chance to open his mouth, the artist intervened and apologised profusely for the quality of his work, saying that uh, he should have known better, he was deeply ashamed, and the artist insisted he would start the drawing over again. And the editor was astonished and insisted that the drawing wasn't that bad, and there was only a few details that need changing. And you know what that reminds me of? Um, it's a random one, but you know the the, the film and the movie, Eight Mile with uh, Eminem, plays uh, Jimmy Rabbit is the, um, is the character's name, but it's based on Eminem really. But you know, towards the end of that film where he has a rap battle, and in the rap battle, he says everything bad about himself before the other guy can say it. So he says everything about... Um, basically takes the piss out of himself for for you know two or three minutes and hands the microphone to the other guy who's supposed to well, the other guy's saying well i was supposed to say all that now i don't know what to say and he, the guy chokes basically so uh it's it's similar to that like kind of beating somebody to the punch like uh, i know what you're going to say let me say it first kind of thing so um if you're wrong you know you're wrong and uh, you're about to be criticized just beat them to it and criticizing yourself before the other person gets a chance is a lot less humiliating and often it'll be met with forgiveness and, uh, and downplaying of your mistake. So unloading your um, your temper might temporarily ease some of your anger, but it's the most unproductive way of dealing with conflicts. You need to be friendly. 
that's the next thing that um, Dale Carnegie says in his book. Think about your opponent who has listened to you vent at them, right? Are they going to share your relief of letting letting off some steam or are they be more likely to agree with you now that you've given out uh, to them? Probably not, right? In fact, you've probably only made them angry as well. So if you're venting at somebody, you're less likely to make the other person feel sorry for you. You're, you're just going to get their back up and it's, um, it's chimp talking to chimp, right? Like in the, the chimp paradox um, book, if you've ever read that one or listened to our podcast on it. So be friendly. Um, being being beginning, I should say, in a friendly way, paid off for a, the the white motor company when two thousand five hundred two thousand five hundred of their employees went on strike. And instead of being angry with the employees, the president of the company publicly praised the employees in the newspaper for the peaceful way they went about striking. And the president even gave out baseball bats and gloves to the employees so they could play baseball in the car park while they were picketing outside the company. Within a week. A compromise was found and the workers returned. But had the president started off by condemning and threatening the employees, the strike might have gone on for far longer and the goodwill of employees would have been lost. So if you can beat somebody to the punch and be friendly, you know, that's, there's a lot of power in that. So anger begets even greater anger. That's what he says in the book. So before you fire off an angry email, think it through. Right? I, like I said in, in the previous um, section part of this, this podcast on how to win friends and influence people, uh, write the email, delete the email address so that you don't accidentally send it, write it, save it as a draft, come back to it tomorrow, right, and, and look at it with a cool, calm head. You might feel temporarily better sending that angry email and you hit that send button, but the damage is done and, you know, there could be no way back from it. So wait, think it through, is there a more tactful way for you to deal with this? Next thing he says then is to get them to say yes. Dale Carnegie believes that you should avoid the person saying no at all costs. And once someone says no, it takes much more convincing to get them to say yes. So transforming a negative to an affirmative is a difficult task. Instead, what you should do is to try to get them to say yes as early as, as possible in the conversation. Um, it, can make, it can sometimes make the person feel more biddable, like as they're, um, as they're more likely to go along with you. I remember reading this thing before. Now, there's, there's a lot to be said for the simplicity of trying to get somebody to say yes. Uh, the customers in sales, they call it the yes ladder in persuasion, and they call it something similar, but it, it can be a bit of a simplified thing sometimes. Um, in, uh, what's it called? Never Split the, Di- Never Split the Difference by uh, Chris Voss. He talks about, rather than getting somebody to say yes, get them to say, that's right. It, it's much more, they're agreeing with what you said then. He said he thinks it's a much more powerful thing when it comes to negotiation, which is the same thing as communication and sales. But I remember reading something before in, I can't remember where I read it, but uh, some of the best salespeople, like for used car sales, they will sometimes say something that's um, true, right? Like, you know, say, say, I think the example that they gave in the book is like, imagine you're standing in the, in the forecourt and you're looking at all the different cars and you've, you're going to go in and, and look on the computer like it's some more cars. The salesman might say something like, come on in, then we'll, we'll, um, I'll bring it to my desk and we'll, we can have a look at some more details, whatever. And uh, when we go in, you'll see, um, you'll see, a, you'll see a red Porsche on the, on the right there, which is just, it's, you know, it's, it's true. Like, and it just, it just, there's something psychological happens there where you walk in to the, to the building and there is a, a red Porsche car there where he said there was. It seems like a real silly thing, but there's something powerfully psychological about 
saying something that's true and the person in their head goes, yeah, that is true. He's he's a trustworthy person. He, it's um, Everything he says is true kind of thing. It's, it's a weird one, but um, it's the same thing as getting somebody to say yes. So, so it can be as simple as just repeating the facts of the situation and getting a person to say yes. A sales assistant in a hunting store used the yes, yes technique to sell a hunting bow to a customer who'd rang to rent one. The sales assistant assistant told the customer that they're not renting bowls anymore. Then he asked the customer if he'd rented one before. The customer said yes. Um, he had he asked if he had cost twenty five to thirty dollars to rent it. The customer said yes. Uh, he asked the customer if he'd like to save money, and the customer said yes. Then after three yeses, the sales assistant asked him if he'd like to purchase one for thirty five dollars. So five dollars more than the price of renting one. And the customer said yes. So keep the emphasis on the things you do agree on, no matter how small. And this. This can be the fact of the situation or the shared goal that you're working towards, um, but have different opinions on how to achieve. Stress the things that you agree on rather than the things you disagree on. Now, imagine that you are leading a sales team and they are struggling to reach their targets. They have become completely discouraged and the morale of the team is low. As their manager, what would you do? The best way is to consult your team. Dale Carnegie believed that we tend to have much more faith in the ideas that we have discovered for ourselves rather than the ideas that are thrust upon, thrust upon us. A student of Carnegie's was exactly in this position and used this principle to get his team motivated again. He held a meeting and asked the team to write on the board what they expected of him as a manager. Then he asked them what he as a manager should expect of them. And they wrote things like loyalty, honesty, initiative, enthusiasm, positivity. And rather than telling the team what they needed to do, the team came up with the ideas themselves and they felt they'd been consulted rather than lectured and this boosted morale and the sale soon followed. So when you have an idea, uh, you have to make sure that people buy into it early and they have to feel like that they came up with it. It makes it easier for them to, to feel like they're invested in the process. Don't force your opinions on others, but do make suggestions that will lead them to your point of view. And I remember reading before about a, a sales team who was it was expanding really quickly and the, the 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 commissions that were in place for the team were not going to work as the team expanded maybe the team was a team of three now as a team of ten and and um, the commission structure just wasn't going to work so the the senior management consulted with the salespeople and said listen we have to change the commission structure um because it's not going to work as we expand the team what we want is your input but we want you to be clear on this this is not a democracy me and the senior team, we're all going to make the decision, but we want your input on what exactly you think fair should be. Here's the problem as it is at the moment. This is why it's not going to work um, as we grow. So what we, what should we do? And the sales team submitted their um, their suggestions and the decision was made. Some of the salespeople were happy. Some of the people were, were not happy, but they all got on board with it because there is a there was a buy-in from the team. And now if you imagine... If you imagine the the senior uh, senior executives of the senior team had uh, just opened the door and said, "Okay, sales team, here's the new commissions, and um, just going to have to deal with it, goodbye," the sales team would have lost their mind because you know we haven't been consulted and we haven't been informed and we haven't been involved in the process. So when you get people to buy in, there's there's huge power in that. The next thing then, according to Dale Carnegie, is to is to see it from their perspective. Like, you know, tactical empathy is what Chris Voss would call it in a, um, a Never Split the Difference. 
So we've all had different opinions to other people that have resulted in, in arguments. In the middle of the, of the argument, we tend to lose sight of something very obvious. Uh, the person that you're arguing with truly believes that they are right. And there's a very good reason why they hold on to this opinion. And if you were in their shoes, you'd probably hold on to that opinion too. So Carnegie believes that if there is one thing you learn from this book, it's this. Look at the situation from the other person's point of view or the other person's perspective. Think to yourself, what is causing the person to behave and think in a particular way? If you can step outside yourself and understand the reason for the person's reaction, you are more likely to argue effectively and tactfully. Tells a story about a customer who was behind on her car payments and they used this method uh, to great effect. When she received a phone call from the car company, instead of arguing or lying, she put herself in the caller's shoes. She apologized for being such a nuisance customer and causing such hassle for the company. And the caller immediately changed his tone of voice and said he had to deal with aggressive customers all the time. He told her a few stories about rude customers he'd had to deal with, and she just let him vent his frustration. At the end of the call, he said her late payment would be no problem. Just pay what you could. So before making a request, whether it's a sale or asking your boss for something, take a second. Imagine the situation from their perspective. Ask yourself, why would they want to do this? Give them a good reason that makes sense for them to say yes to. Once you understand that, you know, the, the world opens up to you um, about, about what's possible. The next thing that he says then is to be sympathetic. We all love receiving sympathy, whether we want to admit it or not. And it makes us feel validated and understood and a little bit special. But Carnegie believes that you should never discredit how someone is feeling. Whether you agree with them or not, sympathizing with them is far more productive and effective. He tells a story about an elevator maintenance contractor who needed to complete some repair work on the elevators in the hotel. The hotel manager didn't want the elevators to be out of service for more than two hours at a time because of the guests, but the repairs were going to take eight hours. Instead of trying to argue with the manager to give him eight hours that the contractor needed, he simply just sympathized with him by showing that he understood his concerns. He told the hotel manager that he knew he was concerned about disrupting the guests and he wanted to complete the work as quickly as he could to minimize the inconvenience that it would cause. But if the elevator was not repaired now, it would lead to a bigger fault that would take several days to repair and inconvenience guests for longer. And the manager then agreed to the eight-hour shutdown. So showing sympathy for the other person's predicament is key. Instead of arguing with them, genuinely sympathize with them. Let them know that if you were in their shoes, you would feel the exact same. This will immediately soften the person up and make them more amenable. The next thing then is to appeal to their nobler motives. We all like to think that when we're faced with a difficult situation, we'll do the right thing. Having integrity is something that we all really value. And Carnegie believes that people can be persuaded by appealing to their higher motives. It gives them an opportunity to act like the bigger person and to be their best selves. A landlord appealed to his tenant's nobler motives to avoid losing out on rent. The tenant was threatening to serve notice immediately, despite there being another four months left on the lease. And the landlord knew that he would find it difficult to get another, another tenant uh, that quickly. So instead of going down the legal route, the landlord decided to appeal to the tenant's higher motives, his sense of integrity. The landlord told the tenant that he had a high regard for him and believed him to be a man of his word. The landlord would give the tenant a few days to think it over, and if he decided to leave, he would not pursue the tenant. Instead, he told the tenant he would have learned that he was a bad judge of character because he duly, truly believed that the tenant would honor the contract. The tenant returned and agreed to see at the end of the contract. And that whole idea there is to label people the way you, the way you want them to behave. Like if you have, for example, um, 
a particular project that no one really wants to go near because it might be a bit sticky or a little bit, you know, weird or um, it might be too much ambiguity in it. You could hand that project to somebody and say, listen, John, you're, you're a problem solver. Um, what do you think we should do here? With this? Like, and, if, and by, by labeling the person as the problem solver, they think, yeah, I am a problem solver. Yeah, I am good at solving problems. You're good at solving problems, John. Uh, you've, got, you've got great uh, uh, patience for this kind of thing. Uh, what do you think we should, how should we approach this? Um, those kind of things work really well. So kind of appealing to their nobler self is a, is a good one. So you need to give a person a good reason to do something. So appealing to their nobler motives provides a strong driving force and gives them an opportunity to do the right thing. Tell them that you hold them in high regard and they will be acting consistently with your expectations of them. The next thing he says then is to dramatize your ideas, right? This is, this is real kind of sales 101. Have you ever sat through a really boring presentation, listened to the speaker droning on and on, thinking about how you'll be, uh, what you're going to have for lunch and um, doing anything you can to try and escape the boredom? As a presenter, you have to try and catch people's attention. No matter how brilliant your idea is, if you present it with cold facts and figures, you'll lose them. Take advertisers, for example. They're keenly aware of the need for dramatization and showmanship. Carnegie recalls a manufacturer's uh, a manufacturer of rat poison who boosted their sales by using live rats in window sales. The salesman showed up showed a shop owner how much money he was losing by using old cash registers by throwing money on the floor. The truth is not enough, right? You need to make sure that it sticks in the person's mind by being dramatic. Tell a story. So the next time you you're you're doing a presentation, try and add some sort of pizzazz to yourself. Ask yourself. How can I show my audience rather than just tell them? The next thing he says then is to throw down a challenge. If all else fails, throw down a challenge. People love an opportunity to prove their ability to excel and to win. If you started running, you might have set yourself a goal of running maybe um, you know, the, the couch to 5K or something like that. But Carnegie believes that we can use the same method to motivate people by appealing to their desire to better themselves. A mill manager was having trouble motivating his team and he was starting to run out of ideas. The owner stepped in and asked him, asked a mill worker on his way out how many batches of steel they'd made during the day shift and the worker told him six. The owner wrote the number on the ground with a piece of chalk. When the night shift was coming in, they asked what number on the ground on what the number on the ground was for. And he told them it was the amount of batches that the day shift had made. When the day shift came in, they saw the number being changed to seven and the gauntlet had been thrown down. And when the night shift came back in, the number had gone to 10. So when motivating your team, give them the opportunity to raise their performance. People thrive in a job that stimulates. So throw down a challenge to create some healthy competition and rivalry, even if it's just against past performance. Hey, before you go, just a quick message about Tribal and what we're all about. We believe that true learning happens when you understand, remember, and deliberately practice your newly acquired knowledge. And this podcast just covered the first part. You now understand the key takeaways from this book. To help you remember them, we will send you three interactive summaries that accompany this episode to empower you to remember those key takeaways at the moment of truth. And then to really embed the knowledge from this episode, you can use the dedicated digital action log to set a time and a date to go out into the big bad world and deliberately practice the key takeaways. For all of this, and for all of our podcast episodes, head over to mytribal.com. Until next time.